0: Hello everyone, welcome back to the British Food History Podcast. I am Dr. Neil Buttery, and today's topic is 18th century dining, and my guest is the esteemed food historian, and I think it's fair to say raconteur Ivan Day. And I'm going to tell you about what is coming up after this short message. Hello, this is Tom Dinas, the host of the Delicious Legacy Podcast, a podcast all about food and history. As fans of the British food history, I know you have a bottomless appetite for all dusty recipes, unknown herbs, mysterious spices, and long-lost ingredients. So, why don't you join me? You can find the Delicious Legacy podcast wherever you listen to quality podcasts, such as the British food history, and also on Twitter and Instagram. And now back to your regular program. Now, as I've mentioned a few times by now, my next book will be published later on this year, Easter Hopefully. It's a biography of the 18th century cookery book writer, housekeeper and business person, Elizabeth Raffold. It's called Before Mrs. Beaton. Elizabeth Raffold, England's Most Influential Housekeeper. You can pre-order it now wherever you pre-order books from. And don't forget my other book, A Dark History of Sugar, is also available to buy. Now I wanted to make a couple of special episodes of the podcast to look at certain areas that I didn't or couldn't go into uh, in a huge amount of detail and dining was one of them. There are so many aspects of Elizabeth's life that had to be discussed and of course one of those that I had to go into great detail was her work in the kitchens but I didn't really write at length about the diners themselves and what they are eating from and with. Of course, I discuss it a bit, but it's no deep dive. Well, Ivan very kindly invited me up to his beautiful home, a 17th century farmhouse in Cumbria, to talk to me on this very subject. Now, if you don't already know, Ivan is a social historian of food culture and a professional chef and confectioner. He's contributed to dozens of TV and radio programmes over the years. and He's also the author of a number of books and many papers on the history of food and has curated many major exhibitions on food history in the UK, US and in Europe, one of which was a recreation of Elizabeth Raffles' hugely complex Directions for a Grand Table. We talk about that more in the interview. Aside from his vast knowledge, he's also an expert in using historical equipment and has a huge collection of cookware as well as an impressive library of original books and manuscripts. When I arrived, Ivan laid out a range of books as well as some porcelain, cutlery and kitchen equipment from the 18th century and demonstrated how some of it was used. This is a real working kitchen by the way, so there are lots of noises as well as the pops and crackles of the fire that he was stoking in his bread oven. So I think you're really going to enjoy listening to those sounds as well as the interview. Before we begin, don't forget I want to hear your thoughts and questions about today's subject. There's going to be another postbag edition at the end of this season, so get in touch. Email Neil at Britishfoodhistory.com, Twitter at Neil Buttery, Instagram at Doctor That's D R underscore Neil underscore Buttery. There's also my new Facebook discussion group at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash British Food History. Links to those of course are in the show notes, and there are links to all the things we talk about today. More about that at the end along with some information about this episode's Easter eggs, which, this time, are particularly delicious ones, I must say. So, Ivan and I talked about ostentatious coronation feasts, the rise of female food writers in the 18th century, including Elizabeth Raffled, of course. We talked about market gardens, the presentation of food at the table, jelly and flummery moulds, how crockery, cutlery, and, well, the whole dining experience changed... Going into and then going out of the 18th century, we also talked about authenticity and the practicalities of spit-roasting, amongst many other things. Ivan's home is such a treasure trove, I honestly didn't really know where to begin, so I'll let him lead the way.
1: Well, maybe we could start with Elizabeth Rathold, because in her book she has some table-setting plans. Very complicated for a very major entertainment, you know, mm. with loads, dozens of different dishes. Mm. On it's the a wonderful
0: table. drawing, isn't it? Yeah,
1: it's very common in many cookery books. You get those. That's a particularly ambitious one with mm. many different dishes. And back in, oh, I think about eight years ago, I reconstructed it um, in a museum in America, hmm. believe it or not, in Houston. Mm. The reason yeah. I did it there was they had in the collection a lot of the kind of tableware, the silver and the porcelain that you'd need to reconstruct an 18th century table. Mm. And and I'm very interested in that side of it. I'm obviously a cook a lot, but I'm particularly interested in how the food was presented at table Mm. and how it was consumed. But if we're talking about the 18th century, I think we've got to actually go back a little bit further. Mm. And on the table in front of you Mm -hmm. um, is a book which tells you what really up a class you know, high status dining was. In fact, you're looking at a great big plate of Westminster Hall, uh, yes, which is featured in the news because Queen Elizabeth was laid out oh, in gosh, state of course, there. Yes. But it used to be the room where the coronation banquets were served after the coronation. And what you're looking at there is an original copy of a book about the coronation of James II Mm -hmm. and his queen consort, Maria de Modena. And they are sitting at a table, which has got 145 dishes on the table. And there's a table plan, which shows you exactly what all those foods were. But what it is, he, the king, had been exiled during the Cromwellian period in France. And he became acquainted very much with the very high court style of Louis Fourteenth at Versailles. Yes. So when he came as king, after his brother died, Charles II, he wanted to have a very grand start to his reign. And so he um, got the English cook, who worked as the master cook, and we worked for Charles, his brother, a man called Patrick Lamb, mm-hmm. to concoct this feast. But this meal was served in a style that was very common in the French court. It was a service which was called ambiguous service, and it was what was called an ombreux, and it meant that all of the foods of the two courses of the meal and the dessert were all on the table at the same time, um, which made it very practical for this kind of static dining in in a big hall. What is very important in it, there are these vast pyramids of fruit and sweetmeats on the table, um,
0: which you can just about see in the engraving. The engraving, the the king, queen, are at the back. We're 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 looking down at the hall and they're very tiny. Yeah, (laughs) but the the,
1: the table in front of them is absolutely vast. If we go back to the actual table plan, Mm -hmm. which is on the next page. Here we go. Wow. So that's the King and Queen's table. So two people only are allowed to eat the food from that table. You've got 145 different dishes on the table. There are three architectural... Structures. These are pyramids. Oh, right? I see. Yes, pyramids so square, of oh, fruit and fruit and sweetmeats. Now yes. if we can go back into the text mm-hmm. of the actual account of the feast, this is the this is the foods. A oh, catalogue of the several meats contained in the mess served up to their Majesty's table. A catalogue. Not a menu, a catalogue. <laughs> and they're all numbered. For instance, look, number 46 is 24 tame pigeons, six <laughs> larded, hot. Number 47, four fawns, two larded, hot. They're yes. bambis, roast bambis. What about this one? 24 puffins, cold. Okay, what does this all mean? <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, it is crazy. It's, it's an extraordinary, ridiculous, obscene amount of food for just two people. But what it's about is that After the meal was over and the king and queen left the hall, the doors are thrown open and all of the poor and the citizens of London Mm. can come in and help themselves to the leftovers. So basically, Mm. a bedlam beggar can be wandering off down Whitehall chewing on a cold puffin, you know, and he (laughs) thinks that he's sharing... His sovereign's coronation food with the king, you know. Mm. It's a great way of getting a kind of relationship going between your subject. (laughs) This type of very highfalutin table display with the pyramids Mm. and the, the type of food. This is basically English food, but it's served in a French manner. And I the see. French were, you know, the most important court in Europe, you know, with particularly Louis the Fourteenth. So you get a series of cookery books, which are written in French, which gets translated into English at the beginning of the 18th century, which are highly influential. And this is like high-class French dining. And the aristocracy and the upper echelons of the gentry who experienced court, that's how they wanted to dine. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's such a period where... You know, the gentry are looking up to the aristocracy and the aristocracy are looking up to the to the crown. And the, the food at court starts to percolate down the social scale yeah. because people want to impress their guests. Mm. So the earliest sort of British cookery books of the 18th century tend to be based on court food. And then you get an extraordinary thing where, as well as these court cooks, and there are quite a lot of them, they're all men, they're all men, mm. And they use expensive ingredients to the nth degree, Mm -hmm. and they're not practical. And What starts to happen, you know, in the 1720s, 1730s and 40s, is you start to get books written by women who are often housekeepers. Sometimes they're professed female cooks working normally in a big house, and they're very experienced, and they're thinking, God, this stuff is just so ostentatious and wasteful. Yes. Let's cook something a bit simpler. So they start writing books which are much clearer. There becomes a real market. A lot of the female servants, especially housekeepers and cooks, a lot of them are literate. Mm-hmm. You can't cook from a cookery book unless you can read and write. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the mistress of the house would read the recipes out or write them out for the cook. But more and more we're getting, you know, literate and could read and write. So you get a kind of readership target of these literate ladies who work in big houses. And the books are written by women. So two of my favourites are a little one here, which was written by a lady lady called Sarah Harrison.
0: And it's got a very simple title. It's just called The Housekeeper's Pocket Book. Mm, this is one that I'd never come across. I reckon too. I've had a well, look it, it, a lot of people century. would
1: consider it to be a very minor book, but yeah. what's fascinating about it is a lot of people say, well, they don't seem to have eaten very many vegetables. In the table plans you get you know, lots of dishes of fish and meat and seafood and offal and stuff, but not a great deal of vegetables. But of course... They had huge gardens, and they were growing a fantastic range
0: of vegetables in a lot of these big houses. And the big market gardens they had in in cities. Certainly Manchester had a very well-stocked and and elaborate market garden. Yeah,
1: most cities did. (laughs) London had dozens of them, you know, Mm. and they were growing pineapples and all sorts of things, you know. So so all that stuff was about, and the incredible variety. I mean, I remember coming across a 1790s catalogue for a seed merchant in Gateshead, you know, outside of Newcastle. <laughs> mm-hmm. They've got 127 different varieties of gooseberry. <laughs> you know, so hang on a moment. These people had, <laughs> they had amazing variety of vegetables. So why don't they appear in the table? Yes, they're cards? not
0: represented, yeah.
1: Well, interesting enough, you know, in that big thing there, the coronation, they're not listed, but they're there because if you look at the illustrations of the people eating, All of the plate rims are garnished with other little foods, often Mm. vegetables and salad materials. Mm -hmm. So the vegetables are just a way of decorating the meat. Yes. And Sarah Harrison actually talks about every time she gives a little bill of fare, she tells you which vegetables to put on the rim Ah. of the plate, you know. So they're there, and it was just up to the cook to provide Mm -hmm. those, really. Because it depended on what was available from the garden, you know. Yes. Butcher's meat, you knew what you were going to buy, but, you know, often you depended on your boss's beautiful kitchen yes. garden to yes, provide indeed. then you get a marvelous book published a little bit later by a woman called martha bradley it's a two-volume yes. book and in it she actually has illustrations of dishes where the vegetables are actually served around the you know the meats these lovely plates you can
0: oh, see they're yeah. fantastic you know is that a little rib of beef or something yeah,
1: and then she'll tell you in the caption. The one I love is this one at the back here, which has got I think it's a a shoulder of venison mm. in a in a sea of watercress, you oh, know very nice, so the vegetables are appearing all these things, but most most cookery books don't tell you about that at all. Mm. It was just common
0: knowledge. Uh, yeah, see. it's just so taken as red, there's yeah. just no point yeah. writing. Because it. everyone says well yeah. there didn't eat many
1: vegetables, did they? They did actually, you know, more than you probably realize. And of course when you get lower down the social scale, they didn't have great grand meals, you know, with like seven dishes or five dishes or even three. It was just a very small number of, you know, dishes on the table. Mm. And most of the time the gentry probably had very simple meals. These printed plates, you know, which fold out of a cookery, what we like yes. 30 different dishes, is just basically for a special occasion, mm. you know, and the cook and the, and the kitchen would be working full pelt, you know, so the, the, the 18th century is very interesting, and the thing that's so fascinating about it is the female side of the servants in 18th century houses, because they take over, really, their, their books become the bestsellers, mm-hmm. the Hannah Glass. The lady that I know you're working on a book about, um, the wonderful Elizabeth Raphael of Manchester, her book
0: is full of recipes that are really easy to follow, and they all work. They do. Everything I've made, I mean, there's something I've never bothered with because I don't have a roast, I can't roast things, but, you know, some of the bakery things and some of the more simple things all work. Mm. A stewed cheese is very good.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't (laughs) boast that I've cooked everything in her book, but almost. And Mm. I have, you know, roasted some of her dishes in front of a fire and lots of other things. Mm. And I've got a collection, too, of equipment. Um, Maybe we could have a look at those because she's very famous, isn't she, for her kind of moulded flummeries and
0: jellies. as I say these days, she was a game changer.
1: Well, she wasn't really. What happened was she didn't invent those pieces of equipment. They came out of the potteries in Staffordshire in yeah. the middle of the 18th century, and it was the potters who were inventing these novelty forms. I've got some over yeah, here. Yeah, let's go have a look. So look.
0: Ah, oh, beautiful little fishes. Well, these
1: these are from about 1750, and they're made of salt-glazed stoneware. Mm-hmm. There's a little one and a slightly bigger one. And in Raphael's book, she talks about various flummery fish or mm-hmm. blamange fish, and that's what flummery was. It's yeah. basically very similar to modern, modern, what you do, you let it set in the little mould and mm-hmm. then you turn it out and then you get some gold leaf and you gild it with gold leaf. And then you can either sort of put it in a bowl which has got clear jelly in it, so it's swimming around. Yes. And it's called a fish pond. These are the moulds that she actually was referring to. Wow. They are, you know, from her lifetime, one of her more ambitious Yes, I
0: guess this is, this is the, guess the pinnacle this of is her flammary creations. This is
1: a, a, a mould called a Solomon's Temple and it's got these little pinnacles here and, and an obelisk in the middle. Mm-hmm. You you make the base out of a chocolate blancmange. You then make these little four little spires out of white blancmange or flummery mm-hmm. and the obelisk out of pink. But it's very unruly when you try and take it to the table. <laughs> yes, it looks it a bit starts unruly. to move around. Mm, yeah. So she tells you to put a flower with a long stalk down through which makes it look very, very
0: attractive. I've made it dozens of times. Uh, See, if if Hannah Glass had had that recipe in her book, she would not have included a stick of flour in it to give it stability. (laughs) That's the difference, I think, between Hannah Glass and Elizabeth Raffles. Hannah Glass is probably more well-known. Yeah. um, Hannah Glass was not... Not necessarily, from my experience anyway, not practical. She
1: wasn't a cook. I mean, she was a young woman who went to London, got married at 16. She came from a a fairly um, posh background. I've been... Northumberland, um, but she wasn't a cook, and she describes her net, well. She wrote her book anonymously, and it's by a lady. It's by a lady, yes. Missy. It was
0: posthumously given her name, wasn't it? The book, not yeah, book. yeah.
1: But she, what she did, she took, she she cruised on the 18th century internet and cut and pasted other people's recipes, <laughs> but she did kind of make them easier to read and understand. So she doctored, rather like Mrs. Beaton. Mrs. Beaton didn't wasn't a cook either. She was a fashion writer. Yes, and she basically did exactly the same, and um, she modified recipes that she pinched out of other books. Mm. But she did have a lot of ladies who used to test them for her. Nearly a thousand women. Oh, I
0: didn't know yeah, that. Ah, yeah. oh, okay.
1: And um, you know, she would get them to test the recipe, and they would send her improvements to make. Mrs. Raffold was a housekeeper, which meant that she had, you know, was in charge of a kitchen and knew how to dress a table in style. Um, And then after she left service and married, she was a businesswoman and she ran various food businesses, a confectioner's shop, she ran an important inn, and Mm. she was very much a cook. She knew how to do it. And I'm convinced that she probably had some kind of a deal going with the Staffordshire Potteries, because they're the people who invented these forms, not her. So she is following the kind of...
0: Well, she was very talented at taking things that already existed, I guess putting her own spin on it and making it extremely successful. She invented few things, but her real skill was getting the ideas out there. Well,
1: she's the only person who tells you how to use these things, which is very useful Mm. to somebody like me as a historian who wants to understand how they actually... You know these things looked. and I mean, I, I learned from her recipe that that central obelisk is going to be pink, and the others are going to be white, and so she gives
0: you some clues yes. that nobody else does. Yeah, you should say, oh, colour it in whatever manner you like. Yeah. And you go, like, well, yeah, thanks yeah. for that. That's not helping me. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know what might
1: be interesting is is to talk a little bit about how. She presented food, you know, when she worked at Arley Hall for the Warburton family. Mm -hmm. Um, They were pretty well-heeled people.
0: Yes, they were. Um,
1: They owned porcelain, they owned silver. In her day, the custom was really that in an upper-class family, the the two sit-down buffets, what were called the first two courses of a Georgian meal, the first course consisted usually... There was always soup, and there was sometimes more than one, There was sometimes two or even four, depending on the importance of the, the occasion. Mm-hmm. And the tureen would be on a stand. It would be put on the table, and a member of the family, sometimes the wife, sometimes the husband, would actually ladle out the soup, and the, the, the soup plates were passed around you know, as they were filled around the table. And then once the, the soup had been served... The tureens were removed, leaving a gap on the table, mm-hmm. which needed to be filled with something because it looked a little bit empty. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a roast pike would come from the kitchen at one end, you know, and maybe a, um, a beef joint would come out. That was called the remove because, Makes sense. you know, the soups had been removed. So the remove comes in to take the place. It's a strange way of describing it. <laughs> and then all those dishes in the first course tended to be quite substantial, There were roasts. There was often a big fish, maybe more than one. Um, There might be some larger poultry. might be some larger game birds. And then once everyone had had what they wanted, then you just ate what you wanted. And there was a great deal of social cohesion because people were passing things from the other end of the table to somebody who wanted it. You just helped yourself with help from servants sometimes too who might help you out. But
0: Sometimes they were dismissed so that
1: people could mm.
0: interact. I think people think it's like a uh, kind of upstairs downstairs, very Victorian. I think that's the picture that people have in their head, like Downton Abbey or something, where it's all very fixed. People are sat at yeah. their table with their courses that get brought in. No, but this is a completely different. It's all interactive meal. With,
1: there might be twenty-five different things on the table yeah. in the first course, mm. and then once that's everyone's had enough. All the empty plates are taken away and another load come in, exactly the same number usually, Mm -hmm. of lighter dishes. So there might be things like some shellfish. There might be small game birds like snipe, which can be cooked while they're eating the main Mm. course, you know. Mm -hmm. And also cold things from the day before that could have been made in the kitchen the day before, some small pies and other pastries. And puddings as well. Um, Often tarts and puddings would appear in the second course, as a choice, some of the ladies don't want any more savoury food. They might opt to have, you know, a sort of sweetmeat pudding or whatever, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, sometimes, if it was a really grand occasion, there would be a third course, which was called the dessert, and that was often eaten not off silver but off porcelain, and it was very colourful because the porcelain was often decorated by some of it might have been French from Sèvres or from Meissen in Germany or. From the manufacturers in Britain, Derby, um, Worcester, these wonderful mm-hmm. Chelsea—you know—they produced the most amazing tableware. And the the Georgian table was so colourful for that finale of the meal, the dessert. The dessert, the puddings and the tarts had already been eaten in the second course. Yeah. But so this was sometimes little sugar-coated nuts, like comforts. There might be ices. There might be little jellies in glasses, syllabubs, mm-hmm. things like that. Very mm-hmm. light. Mm-hmm. Something you've already stuffed yourself, you know, with game and lots of other goodies, so you haven't got a great deal of room. While they're having those first two courses, they're eating off silver, and the knife and fork um, is made of silver. I've got in front of us a, a little a silver plate from about 1760, mm-hmm. Elizabeth's time, really. The sort of thing they may have had in Arley Hall. I've got a pistol grip fork with a matching scimitar bladed. Yeah. Knife. Beautiful. They are beautiful. So, yeah.
0: Little uh, seashells on the Yeah, little skulls, end. Yeah.
1: yeah. And very rococo, in fact, as is the plate. That is interesting because if you're elevated, if you're ennobled, then you can eat off silver. But if you're just a merchant, then you eat off pewter. And the, one of the big revolutions that happens in the 18th century, really, is the fact that during the 16th and 17th century, most diners... Are carrying their eating equipment around with them, so they're wearing a sheaf at their belt or at their you know girdle yep. um, with a knife in it for eating. Sometimes they carry a spoon around as well. And these these pieces of equipment were rather like iPhones. You know, they were items of personal <laughs> jewelry that you could show off. Mm-hmm. And it isn't really until the late seventeenth and then particularly the eighteenth century. Where the cutlers are starting to produce sets of knives and forks. When the fork comes in, I mean, it hits Britain in the early seventeenth century, mm. but it doesn't really get adopted until really
0: after the Civil War. Yeah, and then people should... were a bit dubious of forks, were they? Well, or was it one of those things which seemed a bit naff to them, or a bit? Uh... Well, it was, it was going a... on there with the dislike of fox. It was a bit woke, I suppose, at the time, you know. <laughs> I mean, Fox, a bit foppish,
1: you know. Okay. And a lot of these real English men in the taverns used to, to laugh. I mean, the man who was credited with introducing it, Thomas Coriat, who bought them from Italy, um, he, were, you know, was they took the mickey out of him. They called him Furkifer you know okay. like Lucifer bit, fork okay. of it you, you know but it did get eventually it was very practical about with I mean fork. the early the earliest fork was a thing called a sucket fork yeah i've never seen this before where you have got a spoon on the end of a long sort of stem and a fork on the other the original um, spork. so if you've got like for instance some sort of you know let's think about um ginger and syrup or whatever mm. you can stick your fork end in it eat it and then you can drink the syrup from the spoon you see and that's what a sucket, a sucket or a succade was mm. a preserved, you it's know, fruit. A dentist's heart except. It and is rather <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then gradually, you know, you this these this is beautiful. These are little seventeenth century forks i have got here. They're sweetmeat forks for spearing sweeties again, you know. Ah. So the first forks really are for the dessert, you mm-hmm. know. And then gradually you get um fork and Knife, and what happens is then this happens in the late seventeenth century. The pointed end, which was useful for picking your, you could spear your meat with it and eat it off your knife if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. You know they start to have a round end this this knife 's about oh, sixteen ninety yeah. so behavior's
0: changed doesn 't it it 's a lovely
1: knife, but mm. it would have had a fork with it, you see, but it, you can 't really spear things with a round end, but it 's safer at table. Mm-hmm. Um, So by the time you get to the 18th century, say to Elizabeth Raphael's period, you get these rather lovely, nicely balanced knives and forks where the the blades are very rounded. In fact, this is what is shaped like a scimitar. Um, And the forks are usually two-pronged at this period. But it means that the work that the tip of your knife originally, the one you carried around with you... So you arrive, you don't have to carry your cutlery around with you anymore. You can arrive (laughs) at the party... And it's provided. Yeah. And they've got the latest, most beautiful sets, you know, with porcelain handles, you know, fantastic to look at, beautiful to hold, making the, the thing much more glamorous, really. Yes. So it's a completely different culture. Mm. And the other thing, of course, is that in the 17th century, people wear their napkin over their left shoulder. Yes. And it's like a long towel. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is you're sometimes using your left hand to secure your meat down on the plate while you cut it, which means you can easily wipe your gravy onto mm-hmm. your napkin Makes like sense.: this, you yeah. see. When the fork arrives, you no longer have to do that. So the napkin changes, and it's got a square shape now, which is put on your lap. But because we used to wear the napkin on the left-hand side, if you go to a restaurant, usually you'll notice that the the napkin is on the left hand side. Left-hand That's side. why it's there. It's not one of these fossil kind of things that no one ever thinks about, but there's a reason for it, (laughs) you know. So as well as silver, porcelain, which was really, really expensive and very artistically made, first made, you know, in Dresden, and then it spreads to other centres across Europe, and then eventually it comes to England, and... This was basically the most valuable and desirable eating thing, and sometimes people didn't use them to eat; they would just put them on the dress just too or, valuable. you know yeah. but eventually you do get full services in porcelain, which were used, and you know they are because you can see damage on them from knives and forks mm. you know but that tended to be used for making dessert services in the early days and you get um, for instance a, a great favorite amongst the upper classes in eighteenth century. Is ice cream. And Mrs. Raffold has an ice cream recipe, she does. you know. But there are other books which have dozens, in fact hundreds, of recipes for them. And the ice cream was often served in a particular type of um cooling of ice cream cooler called a sour glass, mm. which kept it cold at table for two or three hours. And it's a sort of three part I've got one here, come and have a look. Have a look. This one is French and it's from Sev, which was very important um manufactured just outside of Paris, and it's got three sections to it. It's like a basin with another basin. Yes, very straight-edged. In that big one there, it's like it's called a seau, which means a bucket, basically, or a pail. Mm-hmm. There's a, another basin inside it, and then there's a lid. It's got a little wall around it and a handle. And you fill the bottom with ice and salt. And then you put your ice cream that had been made you know, in your ice cream-making equipment. Mm. And then you put the lid on and you fill the lid with ice and salt, and that kept it cold. The si- salt acts as a refrigerant mm. and kept it Yeah, the temperature drops
0: like minus 10 or yeah. something, doesn't it? When you mix, minus 13, mix it. I minus think. Minus 13, Yeah, wow. something
1: like that. When the Industrial Revolution kicks off, everything changes. Mm. Um, gradually, by the middle of the 19th century, the English have adopted a different way of service, which was called Service à la Russe, Russian Service. Yes. Which had appeared really during the Napoleonic Wars, where instead of having all the dishes on the table all at the same time, they came in a series of waves. So, you know, the first thing to come might be the soup, and that was all that was on the table. Mm. And then that was taken away, and another dish arrived. It might be the roast or the fish or whatever, and it went on. So, you know, it was much more easy for the kitchen to handle and for the servants to handle. Um, but the thing was, what it did, the Industrial Revolution started producing new equipment. Mm. So, for instance, you'd have a different knife and fork for each food. So you, the fish, <laughs> fish knife, the famous fish knife, mm-hmm. suddenly appears, you know, in a row of knife, 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 fork, 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 glass, 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 glass. Yeah, glass, all the glasses. You see? Yes. And of course, that meant that the manufacturers really milked this new type yeah, of Yeah, they service. must have cheered. Because in the eighteenth century, you had one wine glass on the table. You might have a little rinser to rinse it in as you change your wine. Change your wine. You know, or there was a thing called a monteith, which the butler probably looked after on the buffet, where the where the glasses could be rinsed. You know, but you only had one glass the whole way through. Mm. So the whole landscape of the table changed, particularly in the nineteenth century, and. You know, the Industrial Revolution was really very much involved in that with all sorts of new things, asparagus tongs and all sorts of other things. (laughs) You know, it was was plain and easy in Mm. the 18th century, if you like, but very elegant, you know. It's extraordinary. And I've been lucky in my career because I've actually, you know, dressed many an 18th century table with the most extraordinary silver glass, wonderful porcelain tableware. And the only place I can do that... You can't do it on telly. You just cannot do it. You know, the, you know, you get a Jane Austen thing and often you look at it and think, that woman is drinking out of a 1920s drinking glass. But <laughs> that's rather sad of me noticing that, you know. Most people, it's a, it doesn't matter. But actually, I want to do it right. And mm. most of the things I've done, I've done within museums where they give me the key to the cupboards and I can get the stuff out yeah. and set it up as it would be.
0: I always ask this question, I suppose, and that's the question of authenticity i think we're going to disagree on this which is why i want to mention it because yeah. I, I cook things from historical foods I've, i'm in a i'm in an apartment it's all electric i'm using an induction yeah. hole so i couldn't be further away from an 18th or 19th century kitchen but i always think well there's there is some value in re- trying to recreate things at home even if you're in an electric oven there's flavor combinations there's processes before you've cooked it that, you know, you might have never used before. You know, maybe just maybe using a pestle and mortar for the first time instead of using something electric. So if, if you're scoring three out of 10 for authenticity, I always say well, it's still worth doing. Of course. What do you, what, how, what's your take
1: no, on that? No, I agree with you entirely. I mean, it's impossible for most people to have the luxury of living like in a 17th century house with mm. an original kitchen, yeah, it's very rare. Mm. This room is one of the very, very few places in Britain where you can actually roast meat as they would have done mm. back in, say, the 18th century. But what is extraordinary is the difference. Yes. is The result is extraordinary. Mm. I used to run courses in this house. Hundreds and hundreds of people have come mm. here and I've taught <laughs> them how to use this equipment. And they always leave with an extraordinary sense of surprise. Um, For instance, meat, it cooks at its best in front of a very hot fire, Mm. rotating on a spit. And of course, I mean, it is possible to sit down and turn a spit by hand, which is rather tedious. But (laughs) I have a clockwork kitchen here. So, for instance... um, I've got here a complicated-looking thing <laughs> it's called fantastic. a, a spitjack. Yeah, this is an 18th-century one, and it looks a bit like the guts of a grandfather clock. Mm-hmm. And it's got a weight which goes over various oh, right, pulleys. Yes, okay, yeah. The weight is in fact a redundant cannonball. And <laughs> listen to it a bit. This is the sound of an 18th-century kitchen. This is authentic. This is what, for me, authenticity is about. Mm -hmm. Your microwave doesn't make this noise. (laughs) It groans and curses, Okay. (laughs) Now, the weight will drive the engine and a little vane will spin at the top. You can hear it whirring around. And the movement is transferred through a chain, which is in a figure of eight, and it's turning a spit. So the spit is turning towards the fire. Yes, it is. So any kind of fat or stuff will go into the fire, and of course it's a very hot fire, Mm. which acts as a fume extractor as well. So it's a very clean way. You're not getting a lot of, you're not a mark. And Mm -hmm. anything that drips off goes into a huge dripping pan larger than i expected so the fat (laughs) underneath the animal or whatever it is that you're roasting or the joint usually or the poultry bird will go down and there's a well in the dripping pan roasting in front of an open fire gives you the best method really of cooking meat because everyone thinks oh you cook over the fire you don't at all you're cooking in front of it That spit that I've got here is about, you know, 18 inches in. When I start off, it's three feet away from the fire. (laughs) But the fire is enormous, and it's incredibly hot, and it's throwing out this wall of radiant heat. It's very difficult for you to actually stand anywhere near it. You always work from the sides, you know, with a long-handled ladle. It's just too hot, you see.
0: It's a great um, drawing in Food in England by Dorothy Hartley. I'm sure you're familiar with it. I know very, very, well. With all the uh, illustrations yeah, that she sure. did. And it's a yeah. fantastic one of her, I think it's a spit boy behind an archery target. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so <laughs> they protecting say. him from the heat. Yeah, mm. and
1: the, you know they used to wet the straw to keep it wet. And he was always given ale to drink, you know, mm. to keep him hydrated. But you see, that that was a dreadful job. It was a, the most awful job. Was You know, like one of those paintings in a Picasso. He had a red side of one face and white on the other, you know. <laughs> yeah, bet. Um yeah. But what happened was these <laughs> these culinary robots, and that's what they are. This is a robot, you yes. know, the kind of drone that turns your spit for mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. meant that that boy mm-hmm. is now, his hands are freed up, and he can go and pluck a pheasant. Yeah. Or might even learn something skillful, like yeah, making yeah. some pastry to make a pie or whatever, you know. And then somebody in the later 18th century, a man called William Fremantle, invented a clockwork mechanism. This was invented in the 18th century. But during the course of the Industrial Revolution, this mechanism, which is called a bottle jack, it looks roughly like a bottle, you wind it up and it will go around in three times in one direction. Oh, yeah. Click. And then it stops. It's got a verge escapement in it which gives it that movement. Mm. So you can have a really narrow fireplace in a cottage and you can roast your meat in front of your fire. What is extraordinary about it is that using it, A, you learn much more about our ancestors than Mm. you will by just reading recipes. Yeah. Or even just following recipes, you know. The recipes are like a musical score. These (laughs) tools that I use are like the, the musical instrument, you know, I'm much more interested in how the tune was played and what it was played on than I am in the score. Yeah. Um, They're both really important for us to understand the past, really. I mean, I, I recreate food, which probably is as close as you probably can get. So for me, it brings the past to life, and food is one of the most important elements of our lives. You know, it's astonishing. I usually find that most of these recipes that you use do work, if you know how to, you know, interpret them. And often the result is pretty good as well. And um, some, some dishes from the past are exceptionally wonderful, really.
0: Thank you, Ivan. There are links to many of the things we discussed today. Most of the books, for example, including The Experienced English Housekeeper by Elizabeth Raffold, There's a link to to Ivan's excellent blog called Food History Jottings, which includes a post all about that Solomon's Temple in Flummery. There's a link to a fantastic YouTube video that Ivan made where he gives a tour of his kitchen and a tutorial in making historical ices. And most of the items we talked about today can be seen in that video. So I strongly urge you to check that one out. You can see more of Ivan's beautiful work on Instagram at IvanPatrickDay. It's an excellent account and well worth following. There are links to some of the books that Ivan has written or edited in the show notes too, including Cookery in Europe, 1660 to 1860. Another called Feast and Fast, of which he was a contributing author. And Over a Red Hot Stove, a book he edited on the subject of the evolution of technology in the kitchen. There are also... told you there are going to be lots of things. There are links to the cookery courses Ivan teaches at the School of Artisan Food in Nottinghamshire, two of which I've signed up for myself, his historical ices and pies, but he teaches others too, so check those out if you want to get some real practical experience yourself. Now, for my subscribers, there are two Easter eggs. There's the uncut part of our chart right at the beginning regarding 17th century dining which I had to cut down for time and the second well that's really worth listening to it's an uncut chat again but this time when we were talking about using historical cooking equipment and authenticity so there's more on roasting there's lots of other gems and it actually adds up to almost a extra episode in length so well worth checking out the easter eggs associated with this episode and in fact all the previous episodes is on the website britishfoodhistory.com if you want to become a £3 subscriber and help support the blogs and podcast, and to receive my newsletter, as well as the extra content, including recipes and those Easter eggs, go to the Support the Blog and Podcast tab on our website, bridgefoodhistory.com. There, alternatively, you can make a one-off donation if you prefer, but no pressure, as per usual. Oh yes, don't forget to contact me with comments, queries, etc. for my postbag episode. All the contact details are in the show notes. Right, off I go. Have a great week. I shall return soon with another episode of the British Food History Podcast. Cheerio.